Good morning to you. We are in the book of Esther. Last week we started our journey. The book of Esther is unique. It's a book where the name of God is never mentioned. It's a book where not a single prayer is recorded. And yet it's a book where the fingerprints of God are seen on every single chapter of every single event and every single person. Uh, last week we looked at the first half of the book of Esther from the perspective of, of providence, the most encouraging doctrine we tend to forget. Today we're going to again be in the first half of the book of Esther. We're going to again be in those first four chapters, but we're going to look at it slightly differently. We're going to be looking at it from one of the most famous lines in the book for such a time as this. And then we'll spend two Sundays looking at the back half of the book of Esther and one final Sunday where we'll look at some of the typology in Esther that points us to both Christ and the Antichrist. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Esther. The book of Esther follows the book of Nehemiah. So if you're in your Old Testament, you go uh, about two-thirds of the way through, you get to Nehemiah, and there is Esther. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use one of ours in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, page 5. 19. Page 519 should help you find the book of Esther. Uh, many of you know the story. That's fantastic. But I've found that many Christians do not know this story well. And so I'm going to read all four chapters, or at least most of those first four chapters, giving you a little bit of background so we can come into the story. So if you'll permit me, here we go. Uh, the Word of God, before we turn there, let's ask Him to bless our time together. Father, we invite you. You are the author of Scripture. You have given us all we need for life and doctrine. You've given us all we need uh, that we can navigate the minefield of this modern world. That you, Through the ancient text and your timeless voice, you've given us timeless truths. And so I pray this morning that the Word of God would crackle with life. That you would help me to bring forth the power of the Word of God. To show forth your glory. And uh, you would correct and rebuke and teach and encourage us this morning. That the Word of God would be everything you've promised it to be, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, that it, might, that it might cut us, that it might divide out joint and marrow and intention and thought. We pray, Lord, that, that you would just speak to us for your Word this morning. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The Word of God says this, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, so he was the Persian monarch we often know as Xerxes. Xerxes is his Greek name. Ahasuerus is what the Hebrews would often refer to him. In the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who ruled from India to Ethiopia, he had a massive, massive, massive empire. It had 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, his winter residence, in the third year of his reign, so he'd only been king for a little while, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants and the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and government officials in the provinces before him. And he did this to try to show off. He did this to try to get them to agree to go on a campaign to attack Europe. Listen to last week's sermon. You'll find out a bit more about that. In verse 4, when he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, for 180 days, for six months, he invited anybody who was everybody, from a military official to a government hireling, to come to the capital, the winter residence, and see his power and his glory to try to get them to say, yes, let's go attack Europe and do what his father was never able to do. His father was Darius the Great, and he was unable to conquer Europe, and the son wanted to achieve more than his father. 
And verse 5, And when these days were completed, that six-month party, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast. So after six months of partying, there's a really big party, uh, for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars. And people sat on couches of gold and silver and a mosaic uh, pavement of porphyry, which is this glittering stone in the ancient world, and, and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones stones and basically you walked in from these drab outposts and you came to this place that was beautiful and powerful and amazing and drinks were served in golden vessels vessels of different kinds they were bespoke artesian pieces uh, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king no expense was spared and drinking was according to the edict there is no compulsion you could have as much or as little as you want whereas in the ancient world you had to drink every time the king lifted his glass for the king had given orders to all the staff in the palace to do as them each man has desired. And the queen also gave a feast to the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, at the height at the end of this final celebration, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk. He commanded some people that are hard to pronounce, his seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring his beautiful queen Vashti before the king in her royal crown in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. In his drunken state, the, the Talmud tells us that probably he invited her not just to come in her crown, but to come just in her crown to show off just how much he has and they don't. But that is why King, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, verse 12, delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Here he was supposed to show off that everyone should listen to me and attack Europe and his own wife won't listen to him. Verse 13, And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and the judgment, the men next to him, those seven men, those princes of Persia and Pedia, who saw the king's face, and sat first in his kingdom. This is what they said. According to the law, what is to be done to Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only has the king, uh, against the king has the queen done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of all the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Meaning, you've just ruined everybody's marriage everywhere, pal. Better fix this. Verse 19, If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out for him, and let it be written amongst the laws of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be repealed, that once it goes out, that's the law, can't be changed. That Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus. That the price for her insolence is to be dethroned. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, remember it stretches basically from modern Pakistan to modern Sudan, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. And so then he sent letters throughout all the royal provinces to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language that every man be master in his own house, and speak according to the language of his people. All right, so now we get to chapter 2. Chapter 2 says, after these things, three years have transpired. 
Uh, from, from the first chapter to the second chapter, he's had his war, he's gone off to war, he lost the war, he lost his army, he lost his navy, and now he comes back defeated. He will never again try, no Persian will ever again try to take Europe. Uh, 10,000 of his elite immortals are crushed, 200,000 of his men are crushed, and his entire army uh, and navy are defeated. And so he comes home dejected, defeated, disparaging, and discouraged, and he comes home depressed, he comes home difficult if you're going to have to live in the palace and not and suffer the wrath of the king. And so he comes home, and the one thing that he prized was his beautiful wife who he deposed after these things. Important little three words, eh? When the anger of King Oasiaharius had abated, he remembered, oops, I fired Vashti, <laughs> and what she had done and what had been decreed against her that can't be repealed in the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And so the king's young men give a frat house idea. The young man who attended him said, well, you know what? We can solve this problem. We're missing a queen. Let all the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins in the harem of Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king, let her become queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and so he did it. And now it gets into all the mechanics of it, and the empire-wide search is made, and they're given a year to, to look pretty by the ancient standards. And, and eventually, out of all these ladies, and every single one of them comes to the king's, from the king's harem every night, uh, and if they're called back, then they get to be finalists on the Miss Persia contest, and one of them gets to be queen. And that one ends up being, in the providence of God, a Jewish girl named Esther. She's raised by her cousin named Mordecai. Mordecai is not her mother or father because her mother and father have passed away and Mordecai has taken her in. And the one thing he tells her is don't tell anyone you're Jewish. Jewish. All right. Now, uh, Mordecai uh, is, is at the king's gate and a turn of events is going to happen. Uh, there's going to be a, a situation... Verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. It would appear as though he got some low-level magistrate uh, uh, job. When his uh, cousin was, was made queen, one of the things he got is he got a, a low-level government functionary job to sit at the king's gate was typically a place where you would conduct kingly business on behalf of the king. Verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred to the people. Nobody knew she was Jewish. As Mordecai, her cousin, had commanded her, he, he carefully concealed their Jewishness. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, well, they became angry, and they sought to assassinate, to overthrow King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. While he was doing his job, he overheard these two guards whispering in a dark corner. And so he went and he told Queen Esther. And Esther told the king. And when the affair was investigated and found to be true, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, generally speaking, when someone over, uh, undercovers an assassination plot, you would be greatly rewarded in the ancient world. Instead, he was just forgottenly recorded. It was put in a book that nobody ever gave a second look. He was faithful, and he was forgotten. But God's going to remember that and use that later as we go through the book of Esther. Sometimes we do things, we do the right thing, and it doesn't seem like it got us very far. But the story is not always written. Chapter 3. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Now you would expect him to say he promoted Mordecai. Mordecai who saved his life. Have you ever had a situation where you do the right thing and the jerk wins? <laughs> the Bible can relate. The Bible says there's nothing new under the... Yeah. All right, so uh, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted 
a bad guy, promoted Haman the Agite, the son of another hard-to-pronounce person, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. He became the number two guy in the empire. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Why? Because the king had commanded this. You have to bow before Haman. But Mordecai the Jew did not bow down and did not pay homage. Verse 3, And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, so this happened more than once. This happened several times. Why do you transgress the king's command? See, because see, their job is to enforce the king. They may not like Haman either, but the, Haman, uh, the king said you have to bow to Haman. Mordecai won't bow to Haman, and they have seen it. Everybody else didn't see it because they were busy bowing. But the king's guards who stood up to watch their insurrection, they say, hey, one dude didn't stand down. And they saw it repeatedly, and eventually they went and they talked to him. Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, do you understand that Mordecai was absolutely intransigent in refusing? It wasn't a one-off event. And they were reluctant to squeal on him, but eventually they knew they had to. And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them, and so they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he told them, well, I'm a Jew, meaning I don't have to for some reason. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him. See, Haman didn't know this at first. He was so happy seeing everyone bowing down. You know, the whole world's bowing down to you, but one person, and you get stuck on that, that one person. Life's like that, isn't it? All right, so... Haman, stuck on that one guy. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. And he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai. So who are these people? Well, he found out that Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. This is overkill. One Jew won't stand, so all the Jews must no longer stand. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom, which is basically all the way from, from, from India uh, to Ethiopia in the ancient world, from Pakistan to Sudan, all the Middle East, part of Africa, into uh, Asia. You're going to kill every Jew. On the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year, King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. Which day shall I do this wicked thing? And they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman came to the king, and he said, there is a certain people. He doesn't say who those people are. There's a certain people. He's leaving out important details. Scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different. They're weird from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, which isn't totally true, but it sure makes a king mad. Uh, so that if, if it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them, meaning this is bad for you, it's actually just bad for Haman, but people package their lies a certain way. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. Meaning whatever it costs to wipe these people out, I'll pay it because I love you so much and I'm your number two and I'm always looking out for you. So the king took his signet ring, his official thing, the endorsement piece, and he said, yeah, you can take this and you can make this law of the land. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. You don't need to spend any money. You're helping me out. I'll spend my own money. And the people also do with them as seems good to you. Verse 12. And then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month in an edict, according to all that wicked Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials and all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. Everybody was going to hear this in their mother tongue. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's signet ring, so it had the effect of law. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, those 127 provinces all over, with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews. 
young and old, women and children, in one day. A total, complete, and utter genocide. That's the order. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and then you can take their stuff. That's what it means when it says to plunder their goods. So in case you were a little squeamish on killing everybody, you can have all their stuff. Oh, well, now I'm game. Send it for me. I'll make some money on this deal. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. You just line up and be ready. Think about which Jew's house you're going to burst into, whose throat you're going to slit, and what gold you're going to take. That's the decree. The couriers went out and hurriedly, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel from the very heart of the empire. And the king and Haman sat down to what? To drink. There's one thing that king's good at, drink it. And the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So, so people were like, wait a minute, there's a genocide? Wait a minute, there's going to be a homicide? Wait a minute, there's going to... Like, even the people who weren't Jewish were going, well, what's going on in the empire if a whole people can just be decimated? Men, women, children, everyone. Uh, I, I'm a little shaky. What if the side that Haman doesn't like me one day? It wasn't just the Jews that were afraid. When the government went nuts, everyone got nervous. Chapter 4, our last chapter today. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai, he tore his clothes, a, a sign of great uh, 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 of contrition and mourning before God. And Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes on his face and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He's wailing before God. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. Now you were never, never, never supposed to go to the king's gate with anything but a smile and your Sunday best. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes all throughout from, from as far away as India to Ethiopia. And when Esther's young women, the woman who had attended the queen, and her eunuchs, the men who attended the queen, told her the queen was greatly distressed. She didn't know about the empire-wide edict. She's sitting in the harem in a very sequestered situation. She doesn't know palace affairs. She just knows that her uncle is out and he's wearing sackcloth and ashes where he should be in his Sunday best with a smile on his face. And so she, she says, uh, send garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. But he wouldn't accept them. And then Esther called for a, a man she trusted, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Why is my uncle, out, my, my, my effective adoptive father out there doing something that could cost him his life? And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square in front of the city of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther then spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, hey, look, verse 11, look, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or any woman, including the queen, were to go to the king in his inner court without being first summoned, uh -oh, there is one law to be put to death, unless the one whom the king holds out his golden scepter so that he may live. Meaning, the king summoned you. You didn't set up an appointment with the king. And if you were so bold to come before the king unsummoned, and he did not extend his grace, you were to be executed. It simplified affairs at the palace, didn't it? You didn't have a long line of askers and chancers. 
and it also limited the number of potential assassins because it would have to be an assassin you chose to visit in the inner sanctum. Do you follow? Two-fold thing, efficiency and also to prevent assassination. All right, now here's the rub. I'm the queen, I should be able to go in. Well, she says, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for a month. He hasn't asked to see me for a month. I don't think he wants to see me. I think he's gotten bored. He has a massive harem and he has a wandering eye. The bride who once captivated, now, uh, Esther. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews for another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You might want to underline that verse. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, I'll do it. Go and I want you to gather all the Jews found in Susa and I want you to hold a fast on my behalf and don't eat or drink for three days. Just pray. Night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do, and we will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. All right, if I've lost you, I apologize. Let's try to review briefly, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts. This is the sordid story before us. There's an arrogant Persian emperor who has a drunken party to woo his generals to undertake a campaign to conquer Europe that his father failed to achieve. His 180-day display of pomp and splendor culminates with a seven-night mother-of-all parties, and when this king is sufficiently lubricated, he lewdly calls for his most prized possession to be brought out to be displayed. Vashti refuses, and the king's plans are thwarted. His seven sages swiftly slack Ahasuerus' rising anger and wounded ego by, by deposing Vashti on the spot. So Vashti is forever banished, and it is inalterable because of the law of the Medes and the Persians. So that after a three-year war that he loses, and his army is decimated, and his navy is at the bottom of the Strait of Salamis, the defeated egotist returns home. And then he remembers there is no beauty from Vashti to console his soul. And so his advisors come up with a plan to completely take Ahasuerus' mind off of both his stinging, stunning defeat and the edict which banished his own favorite wife. And the plan is to take all the beautiful young ladies all throughout the empire and have a Miss Persia contest, ending each night in a kingly conquest until the king finds the one that he likes the best. And then she becomes queen instead of Vashti. All right? That is how Esther ascends to the throne. In all that wickedness, in all that mischief, in all that wantonness, that is how God providentially places Esther on the throne. That is how Mordecai is placed at the city gate as a mid-level magistrate. That is how Mordecai will overhear a plot at that city gate, hearing about an assassination attempt which he will use to, to cease the assassination, and instead of being ascended, he'll be forgotten. But it'll be written in a book, and one day that book's going to be read again. The very fortuitous moment for the people of God at just the right time. 
God will bring it forward. So, in the meantime, there's a heel, and his name is Haman. And Haman weasels his way into the Persian emperor's heart. But Haman never garnered the people's respect. They always knew he was mealy-moused, weaselly, worm-tongued. Only the king would see what we see. And so the king wants to elevate Haman, and nobody wants to celebrate Haman. And so the king has to give an order. Bow before Haman. Because nobody would of their own accord. Which brings us to point one today. Point one today. Our disobedience has consequences. Our disobedience has consequences. Why was Mordecai in Susa of Persia giving Haman a discourtesy? Why was he there at all? And here's the answer. Because Mordecai was one of the legion of Jews. When God gave all the Jews, all the Jews, the opportunity to leave Persia and return from the diaspora to come back from captivity in Babylon and reestablish worship at Jerusalem, how many came back, friends? 50,000 of the millions. And God moved the heart of the Persian king, Cyrus, to release all the Jews back in our other book in Ezra. But only 50,000 out of the millions took the offer. Because many people, many of God's people, preferred the comfort and convenience of life uh, in, in, in what they know among the pagans than the difficulties of returning to where it was going to be hard, where, where everything had to be utterly rebuilt back in Jerusalem. And for many decades, many decades, up until now, from when those people left in Ezra's day until this story right here, the saints in Jerusalem, the faithful saints, struggling, seem to have it much worse than those that stayed back and didn't follow God and stayed in the pagan land. But one day, that decision catches up with them. And this is the day, right here. Mordecai would not have been at the gate to great, horrible Haman. And Esther perhaps wouldn't have been in a harem at all. If she'd have been all the way back in Jerusalem, perhaps the Miss Persia contest selectants wouldn't have reached all the way there. But she was right there when the eye of Sauron was right there. And she caught the eye of Sauron. Friends, our disobedience has consequences. So when God prompts, we ought not stomp. When, when God guides, we ought not deride. We ought to listen carefully. We ought to obey faithfully. For though we can enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, the Bible says, eventually the bill comes due. And we're made to rue the choices we've made. If these saints had obeyed in the past, they would not be in this peril in the present, this mortal peril in the present. But it was not just the failure to follow that put them in peril. It's the outright unbridled arrogance of the people of God, of one man in particular, of a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is full of pride, and pride always comes before a... The king decreed that everybody had to bow to Haman. One guy didn't. His name was Mordecai. And when they ask him about it, what does he say? Well, I'm... Now, what has he concealed his whole life? I'm Jewish. Now, the one time he gets told, why aren't you bowing, what does he immediately say? I've got my Jewish express card. 
The only time he's ever keen to say he's Jewish. And so you think, well, maybe. Maybe he couldn't bow because of some religious compulsion. But it isn't true. The reason he wouldn't bow was out of a long-standing bad blood between Haman's Agites and Mordecai's Benjamites. Mordecai scrupulously hides his Jewish identity at every opportunity in the story. He forbids his cousin to reveal her Jewishness in the Miss Persia contest and when she comes to the throne. And the second he is questioned on why you're not bowing, his answer is, uh, I'm Jewish. Can't bow. I want you to look again at chapter, chapter 3 and verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the Agite, circle that, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? I understand why you wouldn't want to bow to that jerk. Why won't you do what the king said? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen. So they had to tell Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he told them he was a... That was his reasoning. Now, God's people, you need to know, could bow in deference to another person's rank or status and not at all be blasphemous. So this is, this is not because of a religious requirement from God. In Genesis 23-7, when uh, Abraham is negotiating the cave of Machpelah with the pagans of the region so he could bury his wife, the Bible says Abraham rose and then he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and God wasn't upset. And then when Jacob had to finally face his own brother Esau in Genesis 33.3, and Esau is the one who rejected the covenants of God, and, and Jacob was the one who somehow God turned the deceiver into the Israel of God. And when Israel had come back, Jacob bowed to the ground seven times as he came to his brother Esau. And the Bible said that was fine. And, and Joseph's brothers, when they appeared in Genesis 42.6 after selling their brother into slavery, and God places them in the right position so that he saves them, Joseph's brothers, Genesis 42, 6, came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. The Bible doesn't say that's a problem. And, and then when David spares Saul's life in, in the wilderness of En Gedi in 1 Samuel 24, 8, the Bible tells us, so Saul looked and there was David bowing with his face to the earth and paying homage to the king. The Bible doesn't have a problem with that. When Bathsheba went to her husband David in his very advanced age to ensure that Solomon would get the scepter, 1 Kings 1.16 says Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? And there was no problem in that. Do you get the idea? A Jew who shows deference to rank and authority is doing just what the New Testament was saying. Give respect to those you're supposed to give respect. Give honor to those you're supposed to give honor. There was nothing blasphemous in it, Okay. Mordecai is not violating the law. It was his pride that kept him from bowing. It was his pride. Romans 13, 7 urges Christians, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If it's revenue, then revenue. If it's respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Proverbs 16, 18 warns us that pride goes before destruction. 
and a haughty spirit before a fall. Mordecai was too proud to bow to the likes of Haman the Agite. Why? The answer is because of that descriptor in Scripture that we run by and the complicated history of the Bible that it augurs. The Bible carefully tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite. Now, that little piece of data slips by our modern ears, easily unnoticed, but to a Benjamite, it was dynamite. He's a what? Well, he's an Agite. Well, I ain't bound to no Agite. Hatfield-McCoy situation, okay? Why would Benjamins or Benjamites not bow to a, an Agite? And the answer is their history. In Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25, when the Israelites were wandering out of the wilderness, the Amalekites attacked unprovoked. And God ordered, said, one day I'm going to have my people wipe out the Agites. I'm going to take out these Amalekites. And years later, God raised up the first king. His name was Saul. And Saul was a Benjamite. And he was supposed to utterly wipe out the Amalekites and their king Agag. But instead, Saul said, I'm just going to plunder them and I'm going to make the king beg before me and I'm going to spare his life. And God was so mad it cost Saul his kingdom. That was it. Okay. And so, here's Haman, the Agite. And he's seeing everyone bow and he's quite happy with it all. He doesn't notice over in the king's gate in the corner there's a guy who's not bowing and looking at him defiantly. The Bible says he didn't bow down, he didn't pay homage, and the king's servants had to come repeatedly and say, why aren't you doing this? One day, finally the king's servants go and they tell Haman, and Haman comes unglued. See, he probably could have gotten away with his little arrogant move once, maybe twice, but not repeatedly and defiantly. Haman is not a man who takes easy to a slight. Haman the haughty, got the king to make the empire bow to him, though he wasn't king. Haman the hateful becomes murderously furious at this breach of deference, and Haman the heartless was not content with just homicide on Mordecai, he wanted genocide on every Jew he ever knew. Now Haman is hateful, but you know the Bible says that Haman is also hated. Let me show you how. You might want to write Proverbs 6.16. Proverbs 6.16. The Bible says there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And here they are. Haughty eyes. Haman's got them. A lying tongue. Haman's got it. Uh, hands that shed innocent blood. Haman's got it. A heart that devises wicked plans. Haman's got it. Feet that make haste to run into evil. Haman's got it. A false witness who breathes out lies. Haman is it. And one who sows discord amongst the brothers. Haman is it. And the Bible says the Lord hates it. Now that is Haman to a T, isn't it? Wow. And this brings us to point two. If the bad news is our disobedience brings consequences, the good news is this. Number two, nothing can ever thwart God's promises. Nothing can ever thwart God's promises. The, the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire of the world decides we're going to wipe out the Jews. But if God has a plan for the Jews, that ain't going to happen. Nothing can thwart God's promises. In Esther 3, we see Haman's mouth right checks his body can't cash. If Haman would have simply hammered Mordecai, this probably wouldn't be in the Bible, and Mordecai would probably be dead. But Haman massively overplays his hand. 
because he spitefully spurns God's promises to the Jews. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, God promises Abraham an eternal, unconditional covenant to Abraham. That Abraham will be a great people and that God will bless those who bless the Jews and He will curse those who... And it's an inalterable covenant. He puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham doesn't walk between the animals. God alone walks. And, and that walking between to berit, to have a covenant, was to take an animal and cut it in half. And the two parties would walk between it saying, if we violate the covenant, may God tear us apart. But God didn't have Abraham walk. He put him to sleep. Only God went. And God said, I'll tear myself apart if this promise comes apart. You see? It's an eternal, unconditional covenant that God unilaterally makes. All right, And so God has a plan in his dealings with Israel. When Haman the haughty, Haman the hateful, Haman the heartless, and doubtlessly convinced of his own prowess to finesse the impetuous Persian potentate that he is so adeptly slithered up to and got his forked tongue in his ear, Haman thinks, I can wipe out the Jews. But he has forgotten. Zechariah 2.8. Might want to write that down. Zechariah 2.8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, Israel. For he who touches you, Israel, touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. God has a plan for his own glory, not for Israel's glory, for his own glory in his dealings with Israel. This plan is eternal, this plan is unalterable, and many a fool in human history has sought to snuff out the Jews. Perhaps no group has been as universally hated and hunted and yet still living today. Pharaoh tried to do it. He was the most powerful person in the world in that day. He had the biggest army in the world that day. And when he tried to obliterate the Jews, the wheels literally came off of his plan and the waters swept him and his army to their death in an instant. The Nazis couldn't do it. They said, we are going to build a 1,000-year Reich. Didn't last a dozen years when they started killing Jews. And then God sent Patton's third army, and it took out a 1,000-year Reich in 12 years. The combined arms of Egypt and Jordan and Libya and Algeria and Morocco and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia couldn't destroy the Jews. When Israel was a tender nation only 19 years old, and all the Arabs accomplished in their efforts in that situation was they lost the Golan Heights. They lost the Sinai Peninsula. They lost the Gaza Strip. They lost the West Bank. And you know what they left behind? Miles of their dead and burning main battle tanks that were supposed to smash the Jews, who were numerically inferior in this endeavor. Friends, as we think geopolitically, we must think biblically. God's eternal, unconditional covenant with Israel in Genesis and God's future plan for Israel that's mentioned in Romans 9 and the book of Revelation. I'm aware this may not be politically correct, but it is biblically correct. And it couldn't be more direct, could it? When our politicians make decisions regarding standing with or standing against Israel, I really hope that you pray that our politicians would think along the lines of Isaiah 49.15. You can turn there in those blue Bibles, page 776, Isaiah 49.15, seven. Seven, six. Yeah. 
when our politicians make decisions, whether they're going to stand with or against Israel, you need to remember in Genesis that God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In Isaiah 49, 15, the Bible says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God will not forget his promises to Israel. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are ever before me. You know, I'm going to tell you, modern Israel is not perfect. It is just the dry bones of a nation state. There are many wicked things that Israel does today. But God has a plan to one day bring those bones to life. And we are the wild branch grafted in, Scripture says, the Gentile, the church today. Now, some of us know just how incredibly wild we are. And we wonder if God can use the likes of us, us wild branches, to still do kingdom business. And Satan comes just like Haman's forked tongue, and he whispers, well, Sean, you're too dirty. You're too double-minded. You're too stained with sin to really be of value in any venture that would build the kingdom of God. If you hear the brimstone whisperer and you feel his forked tongue hitting your ear, condemningly bringing up your past so that you do not honor Jesus in the present, I want you to listen to point three very carefully. God can use imperfect people. I want you to look around. These imperfect people, God has assembled this morning. God can use imperfect people. God can use imperfect people. God can use imperfect people. Who did God use to save the Jews? Esther. And Esther is no paragon of perfection, my friends. Esther is no Daniel. There's a book of Daniel about a young man who's taken into captivity, and he behaves one way, and then there's a book about a woman that's taken, and it's very different, isn't it? Daniel was taken into captivity as a young man, just as Esther was taken into the harem as a young woman. Uh, uh, Daniel refused to eat the defiled foods, and he subsisted on vegetables and water. Esther 2.9 tells us Esther received the portion of her pagan nutrition, violated all the laws of God, and she ate it quite happily every day. Daniel lived in a pagan land, and, and he lived unswervingly for the Lord in that land. Uh, when ordered, you cannot pray. He not only prayed, he threw open his window so everybody could see, I'm going to pray. And they took him to the lion's den, where he fully expected to be eaten. And he wasn't. By the grace of God. I want you to consider Esther. <laughs> Esther hid her identity. Don't tell anybody I'm Jewish. Well, one thing I'm not going to tell anybody is that I'm Jewish. Esther took on the dress of high society. And when summoned, she took that dress off nightly. There's a difference between Esther and Daniel, isn't there? And yet God used Esther to save the Jews. Why? Because Esther was worthy. No, not at all. The opposite. But because God uses imperfect people. God uses imperfect people to achieve His perfections. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27 says this. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. Think about the Gospels, friends. 
Who is the first to see the risen Jesus? Why, it's Mary Magdalene. You know, the one who outcame seven demons. That'd be who you'd pick. Who's a credible witness? The demon-possessed lady. But that's who God chose. Uh, Whose selfless devotion anointed the Lord Jesus before His crucifixion? Who brought expensive perfume in an alabaster jar, broke its neck, completely utilized it, and then lathered that lotion into Jesus with her own tears and her own hair? What was her name? Mary, the prostitute. God uses imperfect people. Friends, read the Bible and you will see God uses imperfect people. Gideon was a coward, but God used him. Samson was an impetuous fool, but God used him. David was an adulterer and a murderer, but God used him. Elijah was suicidal, but God used him. Jonah ran from God's call, but God used him. Noah had a drinking problem. First thing he does after the ark, but God used him. Here's the point. God only used perfect people. He could only use Jesus. Instead, God uses imperfect people to point people to the perfect Jesus. Be used of Jesus in your imperfection. Brings us to our final point today. Point four. God providentially places us in specific contexts for such a time as this. God specifically places us in specific context for such a time as this. God positioned Mordecai at that gate just when a palace coup was being plotted, and God used Mordecai's loyalty to humble, arrogant Haman later. Zero in on chapter 4. One more time. Chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, and he went to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whether the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed... And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn why this was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square in the gate of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him what had happened. Now I want you to skip down. You're going to have this back and forth happen. And you're going to see right here in verse 13. Mordecai told the reply to Esther, Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You think you're pretty safe where you are right now, but you're only as safe as God's protection. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from some other place. Is Mordecai's hope ultimately in Esther? It's in God. It's in God. But he thinks God might be trying to use Esther, and he's encouraging Esther to be used by God for such a time as this. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, because he knows about that eternal, unconditional covenant. 
but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther faced a day of decision in that moment. She could try to advance the plan of God, or she could try to hide and slide and see if she could get by and save her own hide. Might work. Humanly speaking, I'm pretty safe here in the palace. I'm the queen. Uh, The comforts of the palace and the insulated life of the harem, she didn't even know that there was an edict. That's how sequestered and safe she feels behind the walls. But friends, she's going to risk her safety to advance the plan of God. She's going to definitely put her life on the line because she's going to come before the king and if he doesn't extend the sender, she's going to die right then. The ancient kings feared assassination. That's why they had trusted cupbearers like Nehemiah in our next book who would taste everything because if it was poisoned, he'd die. (laughs) How's dinner tonight? Not dead? Okay, I'll have some. That's how it worked. It was not a very trusting world to grow up in. Esther fears she will not receive the king's scepter. Why? Well, she hasn't been summoned to the king's presence for 30 days. The Bible makes that very clear in her response to Mordecai. When was the last time she was with the king? If you do the math, it would have been at the royal observance of the important Zoroastrian festival, Far Vigadon. It was a Persian festival, and you needed your props there. You needed the queen there to be at the festival. It's the last time. It was a festival celebrating the spirits of the dead. You need to understand just how awful society was. The last time the queen had an official visitation, it was to celebrate the spirits of the dead. And that was mid-Adar, and this is now mid-Nisan. It's a month later. Esther is not sure the king is still interested in her at all. She just came to this affair of state because the prop was needed. There was a time when she was, you know, the king was enraptured with her beauty five years or so ago. The fact that she was fine in form and features completely captivated this king. But he has a large harem and he has a large empire and his eyes tended to wander and she was no longer the most captivating thing in his eye. So Esther was not being dramatic when she says she's risking her life. She's being truthful. Ahasuerus has already deposed one queen, hasn't he? What's another? And besides, if you kill off the queen, you might get another Miss Persia contest. And he seems to be into that, doesn't he? Doesn't seem to have any inhibition there. So Esther faced a day of decision. And Esther's words of no longer having the king's attention were relayed to her adopted father. You understand, Dad, that if I do this, I might get killed. And this was Dad's reply. When you're a parent and you've got to help your child walk with Jesus or play it safe, what do you say? Well, don't put your job in jeopardy. You've got your career to think about. Good biblical advice, isn't it? This is what dad said. Mordecai told them the reply to Esther. And he said, do not think for yourself in the king's palace. You will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, friends, facing annihilation brought on by his own arrogance, Mordecai rightly looks to the Lord, and he clings to God's promises. Mordecai has no idea how God will intervene, but he trusts that somehow God will intervene. All he knows is this is Esther's opportunity to serve God mightily. And you know what? Those opportunities don't happen all that often in our life, do they? For such a time as this. James 4.17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. 
God is telling you, this is what I put you here for. And you say, but I'm afraid, I don't want to. It's sin. It's not a bad choice. It's sin. Esther knows what she must do. She is scared. She is prepared to enter that lair and let the chips fall where they may. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced the fiery furnace knowing God could save them, but not knowing if God would save them. And so too did Esther muster on the day of decision. And so look again at chapter 4 and verse 15. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast as you do and then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai, dad, went away and he did everything that Esther ordered him. She was willing to put her life on the line to save the people of God. And she asked God's people to stand with her and fast that God would show up. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the story of a shoemaker in England. His name was William Carey. And, and he talked about going around the world for missions and nobody else wanted to go. And, and it looked really scary. There weren't any missionaries. And he said, I'm going to go. And he goes, he used this quote. He said, I'll go down if you'll hold the ropes. He used the metaphor, there's this dark, scary cave that nobody quite knows what's going to happen. You're going to live, you're going to die, you're going to get sick. Uh, is your ship going to wreck? Or the natives going to eat you? Like, there's lots of options. Not all of them were super options. I'll go down if you'll hold the ropes. If God is asking you to go down today, Will you go down? If God is not calling you to go down, will you hold the ropes? Will you really encourage those in ministry and missions in prayer and giving and standing with them? As it gets lonely in the cave. And it's scary in the cave. But you know what? Light needs to go in the cave where there's darkness. Each of us has been sovereignly placed for such a time as this. Each of us faces a day of decision. When God prompts, will we answer or will we hide and slide and hope that somebody else does? There's a preacher named A.W. Tozer. He's gone on to be with the Lord. And he describes God's sovereign purposes like an ocean liner going from New York to Liverpool. And, and the people on that ship are free to do whatever they want, but they will not change the course that that ship is headed. It is going from New York to Liverpool whether you sit in the steerage class and never see the sun, or you sit and you soak up the sun, or you're in the dining room uh, twirling around, that ship is going where it's going. God has a plan, and we have a part. The ship is heading to His glory. What are you doing on the ship? The question is not, is God in control of this world? The Bible answers that. The answer is yes. The question is, am I giving God control of me at this moment for such a time as this? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to our hearts, to move our hearts, to move us from a place of complacency to a place where we are, are sold out and all in for Jesus Christ. We invite you, Lord, to, to use us today. We pray that you would nudge us. There are those here that you're prompting to have conversations with co-workers and friends. There are probably those here who you are prompting in, in, in numerous and multitudinous ways that I can't even imagine because you're God and I'm not. 
But I just pray that we would be a people that would say, yes, Lord. Because you really can't say, no, Lord, in the same sentence and be anything other than illogical and unbiblical. I pray, Lord, as we come today, uh, sovereignly, this sermon was built six months ago on study leave in Kansas City. And here we are today, and it's Communion Sunday. I didn't engineer that. It's just your plan. So, Lord, would you, would you speak to us in a meaningful way as we go on and we, as we worship today, this first Sunday on Communion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.